Hey everybody, Eric Trexler here with yet another episode of Mass Office Hours live every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Eastern. Tonight I am joined by the legendary Dr. Eric Helms. Helms, how you doing? Oh, legendary apparently. Good to hear it. Yeah, I mean, only fitting for someone like you to be doing absolutely legendary. Uh, I'm excited because every time you come on the show, we get into a bunch of stuff that uh, is squarely within our shared wheelhouse. We talk a lot about bodybuilding and nutrition and uh, a little bit of metabolism, so I'm sure we've got some good stuff lined up for tonight. But before we get into it, uh, we got to go through the normal announcements, folks. So if you like the show, there are some easy ways to support it. Make sure you like it, make sure you rate it, subscribe, review, wherever you happen to get it. You might be getting this on YouTube, but we're not just on YouTube. We're on Apple Podcasts, we're on Spotify, really anywhere that you get podcasts. Uh, After you like and rate and subscribe and review, make sure you tell a friend. Send them a link uh, wherever they view their content and uh, make it easy for them. If you want to participate in the show, you can submit questions that we will hopefully ask on a later show. So, One way to do that is to use the link in the description of this video. That's a portal for questions that's open 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. But the best way to participate is to actually join us live. You can ask questions as they come to you. And if you have a follow-up question, sometimes you can sneak that in as well. So join us live on YouTube, jump in the live chat, and we take as many questions as we possibly can. And of course, one of the things you're going to notice throughout all the episodes of Office Hours Very often we say, you know what, I actually wrote a mass article about that. And then we talk about the topic. Uh, So if you want to time travel, essentially, and learn everything like three years before it shows up on office hours, and then gain the additional three years of great dieting and great training, uh, just subscribe to the research review. Go to massresearchreview.com. When you subscribe, you get access to the entire archive, which now has been going for seven years um we're in volume eight now i think so uh yeah there's so much content there to get caught up on why wait for it to come up on an episode of office hours when it's all just sitting there waiting for you uh helms any news from your side of the world well i just had the pleasure of getting back from las vegas uh where the uh the good other dr mike dr mike Isertel, um of renaissance periodization hosted me where we did a whole bunch of really good informative collaboration videos we went through two full training sessions that we did down there uh which i talked through the rationale and kind of the application of scientific data and theory and then also we did um five long form videos uh which i think are really hot topics uh everything from the accuracy of rir and rpe in the real world versus studies um the accuracy and the difficulty of training and going to failure in the real world versus studies um, the safety and some of the issues in the supplement industry, uh, weight gain and bulking, um, and uh, also stretch-mediated hypertrophy and training at ultra muscle length. So all stuff that is kind of really on the the emerging side of the data we have right now and our takes on it. So those will be kind of coming out over like the, the rest of the year, kind of drip-fed. And uh, just a big thanks and shout-out to RP for doing what they can to platform evidence-based information and actually speaking directly to some of the lead researchers on the topics that uh, are are near and dear to our hearts. So yeah, that's it for me. How about you? Nothing new on my end. How long were you in, uh, you said Vegas, right? Yeah. How long were you there? I feel like Vegas. It was, uh, we were in an Airbnb and felt like 
many of the other suburbs that exist phoenix <laughs> in america yeah exactly you know yeah. and it was you know it's february so the the, the weather was very mild yeah. So you could have told me i was in you know sacramento in i don't know september i would have believed you but uh you know it was uh it, it was good it was good and uh, i was there for just under a week okay so that kind of a quick trip when you're i mean that, that's at least it's got to be 14 hours in a plane right yeah, it's um, just around 13 to go from L.A. to Auckland, and then it's, you know, another hour to go from L.A. to, to Vegas. But um, fortunately, time difference, even though it's like a day different because you're technically going over, uh, California at certain times of the year is anywhere between three to five hours different from New Zealand. So it wasn't that bad. I just kind of yeah. shifted my schedule a bit. So Cool. Good stuff. Well, I don't have anything exciting going on. Just about to get a study launched over here at Duke. Um, working hard, getting that all set up, a lot of logistics to sort out. Um, just this afternoon, caught a little bit of a baseball game on campus. I was, uh, screening abstracts for a meta analysis while I was watching some baseball. So, uh, I still don't know who won the game though. I had to go early so I could get home for this. So once we wrap up, I'll have a surprise to figure out if we won or not. Um, all right, Helms, uh, before we get into questions, I got to acknowledge the good people. Uh, first of all, I think we have some people who are new because they're they're raving about the elevator music that plays before we go live on YouTube. So, guys, you got to get here early if you want 10 meditative minutes of elevator music that I personally picked out. Um, now, we got a lot of uh, hashtags in the chat. Sexy Trexy Nation, Trex Nation in the House, Trexopolis, Lord of Helms Deep. Uh, that's a good one. People are calling the the pre-music, they're calling it mass jazz, which I think is Ooh. pretty good, pretty fitting. Uh-huh. Uh, someone asked, how do I join in live? Uh, you have. Uh, you can only join in by <laughs> chatting with, you know, via keyboard. Uh, you can't burst into the the video portion. Uh, but we would love to incorporate you and your questions to the extent we can. Uh, someone said, bring in Trexy back. I love it. Okay, so uh, let's get down to business here. And uh, I want to ask you a few questions that I've been uh, keeping my eye on that kind of come in uh, when we're not recording, right? We have this big uh, pile of questions building up, and I always try to allocate them to the right expert on the mass team. So I've been saving a few for you. Um, The first one is from someone named Andrew, and they asked, what's your take on research around ultra-processed foods? Does this add anything useful beyond considering uh, nutrition slash macros and palatability of foods? And before you answer that, I want to give the chat a challenge here. Uh, Let me know if Helms is loud enough for you. If he's not, just drop it in the live chat and I'll adjust some things. I think he should be good, but this will give me a chance, uh, give everyone a chance to hear (laughs) your voice. Um, And uh, yeah, so what is your take on ultra processed foods i know you've covered it in mass at least once um and it it kind of encompasses all these different nutrition uh concepts that we talk about with palatability and you know energy density and eating rate so what's your take yeah i actually covered this i want to say it was in 2019 it might have been right before the, the i think it was right before COVID, if i recall correctly but um Kevin Hall's group did a really cool study where they did a uh, an assessment of ultra-processed diets compared to a more normative diet and looking at, importantly, ad libitum food intake. Um, if we were to scroll back 
to 15 years ago, a lot of the discussion was dismissive in kind of the if it fits your macros community of the impact of ultra processed foods. Because look, if you if you match for fiber, uh, calories, and macros, um, it's not going to impact body composition, which is, I would say, probably largely true, but probably largely unhelpful. Uh, because that's not the questions that we face in the real world. And even in people who are tracking macros and trying to do that, your ability to follow it, uh, adhere to it, and um, the potential other impacts of your diet that are more health-related um, could also be potentially impacted by this. So anyway, what did they find? Essentially what they did is they did the best they could to match everything between the ultra-processed food diet and the normal diet, and then just allowed people to eat as much as they wanted. And they found that there was a 500-calorie surplus, while there was roughly, I think, a 500-calorie deficit, if I recall correctly, or maybe maintenance. I'm, I am misremembering the, the study a little bit. Uh, and the weight gain you would expect in the ultra-processed diet. Now, the interesting thing is that the framing of this question was related to palatability and what else tracks? So they had asked uh, if it was just, you know, if what we're seeing with processed food is just the calories and macros mixed with some palatability, or, or is there something else that's kind of unique about ultra-processed foods that's kind of driving outcomes that we see? Yeah, I think there's at least three things that are, are relatively unique. And I think the this is maybe one of those cases where the reductionist nature of nutrition research, which the field is getting away from limiting their conclusions to, is at play, where the food matrix, if you will, of ultra-processed foods uh, can have some combinatory effects, which makes sense given that there are actual food engineers making this food to make it as easy to eat and as enjoyable as they can, which is, you know, not some massive conspiracy that's, they're they're responding to the market in some way, not to sound like a uber libertarian or anything like that. and, And if I can chime in, like, that's one thing, that's an area where I've gotten into some debates with folks who probably thought they agreed with me on everything uh, and they're like oh that's weird that you're defending these large you know evil multinational corporations but like i don't know that whole logic that food companies are bad because they're trying to make things palatable and easy to eat and tasty and enjoyable and they're trying to make them shelf stable so they add a bunch of stuff to them i i just i've never seen that logic turned around and applied to a chef where you're like, man, you yeah. should have you should have made this dinner I just bought at this restaurant not quite as tasty because then I might not have eaten that entire portion size. It it's just very odd how we scale it up to food companies, but we never interact that way when someone cooks you a meal that's just lovely in the perfect texture. Yep, here we are the uh, the, the the always uh, righteous defenders of capitalism and yeah. uh, the free market. And by uh, the no, way, I should, I should mention, we are now sponsored by Post, um, the, the cereal company. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I meant to say that at the beginning, but go ahead. Yeah, d- d- I mean, like I, I would, I have seen it compared to like the cigarette industry. And I think there's some really important distinctions there, like paying off and obfuscating um, medical professionals and um, obfuscating the data on it, misrepresenting it, actively campaigning with knowledge that there is good data to suggest there's a health negative health impact and trying to sway the whole industry through lobbyists uh, and, you know, 
kind of the movie Inside Job, if anybody's seen it. And, and you know, you could just go to Wikipedia and read about it broadly. Like, and have you ever tried to just go on a pure cigarette diet? Because it's way different than just eating processed foods. Very much so. Um, they're, you'd think because they're highly processed, they'd be palatable. They're not. Chewing cigarettes and eating them, not very tasty. No. Um, but yeah, like that is an example where, yeah, marketing cigarettes to children, like there's, there's many things like you can level, but I, I think this is more of a case of, um, a natural progression of society towards what we would expect, removing barriers to food access and making it easier and convenient to get high energy intakes. Um, and there are unfortunate consequences to that. So anyway, to get back to the question. We get a little bit of a tangent there, didn't we? Um, there are certain characteristics of ultra-processed foods, which probably in combination lead to them to be eaten in excess without intentional intentional effort to do so when just people are left to their own devices. For one, um, eating times was found in a study to be faster. You can eat them more quickly, uh, and that might be a bit ahead of the time course of the uh, satiety response. It's also just easier uh, there's there's data on hard versus softer foods uh, showing that you eat fewer calories from that on average. I know that's not been your personal experience, um, Trex, and I think... But basically, the textures are designed to be easier to eat, so you can eat them faster, and that probably makes it just easier to consume calories, more likely to consume them before you get hit with a robust satiety response. They are generally hyperpalatable. There are combinations of you know, sodium, fat, and carbohydrates that have been shown to be, you know, pretty palatable in the literature. Um, there's also data, there's a study comparing like a cheese sandwich, an ultra-processed cheese sandwich, showing a lower thermic effect of feeding when eating the uh, the processed food. So there's some of the digestion work basically is already done for you in processed foods, such that the energy output is less when you have a diet that is dominant uh, in, in ultra-processed foods. Um, and something they tried to control for, uh, which they weren't able to completely do because it's kind of inherent to processed foods in this 2019 study by Hall and colleagues, uh, it is also a really important concept called energy density. And that's the idea that per unit weight of a given food item, how much energy is in it. So something like uh, a, a bowl of carrots, you can imagine, has very low energy density. You're going to get a lot of weight of food. Uh, primarily through the water content in it, but also um, other aspects like its fibrous structure. Uh, and that is normally quite low in processed foods. They have very high energy density. And then finally, the thing that I just related uh, to uh, energy density to some degree is the fiber content of ultra-processed foods is generally lower. Um, and the macronutrient profile is also generally less favorable compared to whole foods. Whole foods, on average, are going to have a higher protein lower fat, higher fiber content, if you just kind of consume uh, equivalent foods. So while this was a relatively ecologically valid study that Hall did, because they were specifically looking at ad limited intake, they did control a number of things that if in the real wild world would have exacerbated this even more, such as energy density, macronutrient composition, protein, and fiber content, which they all did try to match. So an ultra-processed diet, however, shouldn't be viewed as black or white, good or bad. That's the last thing I'm going to say on this before I know you have some really useful thoughts, is that, um, you know, pasteurized milk, uh, fortified breakfast cereals, um, 
From post protein supplements. From post, <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah, um, added fiber. Uh, you know, vegetarian foods fortified with calcium or B twelve or higher protein. Um, there's some really great uh, meat alternatives that I enjoy as someone who eats a, a mostly plant based diet. Um, there's a lot of ways in which food processing has added to the safety, health enjoyment, or even potentially the quote-unquote fitness properties, uh, or even weight loss, you know, like uh, diet sodas, etc., that you could look at and they would have the opposite impact of the concerns that we generally have about ultra-processed foods. So we can paint with a relatively broad brush when we're looking at ultra-processed diets at large in the real world, but I don't think we should level that same... um, level of generalization to individual food items, which are technically ultra processed, but may or may not carry the same effect of the, uh, the diet. So it is a little more than the question asker uh, constrained to. And, um, I think that is basically the, the full breadth of my answer. Eric, do you have anything else? Uh, yeah, I've got a little bit of nothing to add, of course, but you know, maybe a little bit of garnish, you know, just to you know, spice things up, maybe add a little bit of uh, visual appeal to the home. American cheese to sprinkle on top. Yeah. So American cheese product. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, it's really interesting. The last time I saw uh, Kevin Hall tweeting about this, you know, a little tweet thread about processed foods, uh, it was recent within the last year or two. And he has really led the charge in some of this really meticulous research on ultra processed foods. And he seems to still be of the opinion that we're not totally sure exactly like we haven't totally understood exactly why ultra processed foods tend to facilitate more overeating. We have some glimpses of it, but I, I don't think we have it completely ironed out yet. But I, I agree. Like I, I think all the the elements that you mentioned, we, we know what some of the big, the big players are here. We know what the puzzle pieces are, and we kind of have a general sense of how they fit together. But like you said, ultra processed food is difficult because like some ultra processed foods are have really favorable nutrition uh, characteristics. So uh, it, it's really tricky. And, you know, you talked about how researchers in the nutrition world are trying to get away from looking at everything in a very reductionist manner. Um, and you also alluded to, you know, I was sharing a, an anecdote about how at first I was trying to leverage the harder foods research and then it wasn't working so well for me. So I pivoted. Um, But I think as practitioners and just people who eat, we also need to think through our own strategies in a way that's not reductionist, right? So I actually, you know, I think when everything else is kept equal, I still do experience, you know, better satiety from harder foods than softer foods, which is in line with that research that I've reviewed. And I think that's a pretty solid case to make scientifically, but... When you're making your eating decisions, it's not just one thing at a time, harder versus softer. Like you have to think about the entire um, the entire cluster of factors that surround a given food choice. So for me, when I was seeking out harder foods, it was leading to a, just kind of a shift in eating pattern that was moving me away from this food and toward that food. And what I found was that the combined impact of my eating schedule, you know, how I was packing and, and bringing foods with me, palatability, that whole convergence of things. I said, okay, I know about the harder versus soft foods literature, and I accept that literature as being scientifically robust, but I think there's something else that I can do to be a little bit more successful in my application because I wasn't 
tending to eat more because of physiological hunger. I was tending to eat more because of basically the hedonic drive to eat. So going for a less palatable option, even though it was softer in texture, actually turned out to be beneficial for me. So that's just like one little example of how all these different factors relate to one another. We always talk about how you eat foods, not macros, right? And you could even take that a step back and say, well, we really eat meals. We engage in dietary patterns. And so when you change a food, yes, you may be changing macros, but you're also changing texture. You're changing processing. You're changing all of these different things. Uh, And so you have to kind of consider the entire makeup of a meal or a dietary pattern when you're thinking of how to actually leverage some of this research. So yeah, I think uh, ultimately we're in agreement. You know, there's there's some of these key factors that are different in these really ultra-processed foods, but people are still arguing about how we even define an ultra-processed food because folks really want to make some kind of definition that can sort out the good ones from the from the bad ones, right? And it's probably not not fair to call good or bad, but you know, some of the ones that have much more favorable characteristics in terms of their protein content, energy density, and things like that. And uh, yeah, folks are beating themselves up trying to make these different scoring systems and, and naming conventions to try to define and quantify ultra-processed foods in a way that isolates their elements that may be nudging us upward in terms of population-level obesity. And it, it's a very difficult thing to do. Um. All right. So there's another one. Uh, oh, I wanted to mention this quickly. There's someone named Curious who who posted a question. They asked if I'm still vegan. Uh, was I vegan or just plant-based? And do I know of any reputable resources about vegan or plant-based nutrition, preferably a book? So um, I, I basically am like very strictly vegetarian and almost always vegan. But if someone's cooking for me or if I'm going out to a restaurant, I won't works super hard to avoid dairy and eggs when I'm out and about. If it's a potluck dinner, I'm not going to say, hey, no one use any eggs, right? It's it's just a little, it's difficult, you know? So um, I'm more power way, to- except I'm just upshifted. I'm like lacto-ovo at home, and then I'm pescatarian when I eat out. Yeah. So, I mean, I think a lot of folks do that. Of course, more power to folks who are just like strictly, you know, they've got their, their eating pattern, and, and for whatever reason, they chose it, and they stick with it 100%. Um, but yeah, that's an area where I've I've found uh, flexible cognitive restraint quite easy to to apply. And one other thing that I I incorporate is I do incorporate uh, whey protein, um, not because whey is like magic or there's no plant based alternatives, but everyone I've tried to talk to in the industry, like the supplement industry, it seems like the whey that's kind of circulating and being used in supplements is just a waste product of cheese manufacturing, not a waste product a byproduct of cheese manufacturing. And I actually don't believe that there would be any less whey protein on the planet if no one bought another whey protein supplement. I I think there's more excess that actually gets consumed uh, from major cheese producers. So I don't really... I've I've actually seen some some articles about how small-time cheesemakers and dairy farmers... It's actually a huge problem. They don't know how to get rid of their whey in a way that's not detrimental to the environment because if you just dump it, it's actually quite bad for for the local ecosystem. I guess all the nitrogen gets in, you know runs off into rivers and creeks and stuff. So basically, there's it, it's actually a bit of a nuisance trying to get rid of whey 
in, in a manner that is not detrimental to the local environment. So I know some folks are going to say I'm just twisting myself in knots, mental gymnastics to justify it. But I've tried to get to the bottom of it and say like, hey, if everyone in the world stopped using whey protein, would it matter, you know, for animal welfare or for the environment? Those are my two biggest kind of dietary factors uh, when it comes to avoiding certain foods. Uh, so far, it seems like the answer is probably not. Uh, but anyway, so I'm still doing that. And in terms of um, Helms, do you have any good resources for like plant-based nutrition? I know um, there's a, a podcast called The Proof uh, that seems pretty good. Um, I've not consumed it, but the little clips I've seen, it looks like they bring on, you know, legitimate experts and, and take a pretty evidence-based approach. Uh, I know Melody Schoenfeld had like a cookbook, I think back in the day with, with you know, some, some vegan recipes there. Uh, Melody Schoenfeld, she's been doing vegan, uh, presentations on the old fitness conference circuit for a while. Um, but yeah, I don't really know of many books, um, because I, Helms, I don't know about you, but I just get all my information from the studies. I'm just like in the literature, you know? Yeah, we're lame like that. Uh, I would say, I would say there are some things not to consume, uh, like the, like the, the, the China diet book, some of the popular things that appear to be science-based. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously some of the food documentaries are largely inflammatory and not very helpful, like Game Changers. Yeah. Um, I would... Uh, look askance at anything that is, um, the books are, are, are often a location for, especially when they're related to specific diets, rather than teaching you about diet principles. Um, they're more likely on average, even when they're written by an MD, uh, to contain a lot of biased information, unfortunately. Um, this is going to sound like a total shield moment, but, we actually do have a two-part video series that I did on plant-based nutrition for bodybuilders uh, in our video files. It's not 100% up-to-date with the current best information. I want to say that was probably in volume two, but it's still like 95% extremely helpful. Um, and based upon my experience of being, like I said, largely plant-based. And uh, honestly, yeah, I think some of the best content out there is this guy right here. So in the mass research review, uh, like you said, you've got your video series. I've, I've covered a lot of studies on this mm-hmm. over the last few years. So I do think our mass readers are about as up to date as anybody. And actually, I've got another article relevant to plant-based diets coming out on March 1st. So there was a question that was submitted from Avinash asking, is plant protein better for health than animal protein? And they linked to a recent study that I'm actually covering on March 1st. So I can't uh, give too much away, but I will say um, there there are a few diets that most reputable organizations pertaining to health will recommend as kind of the best of the best top tier eating patterns. And those eating patterns are usually, not exclusively, but usually you're going to see three mentioned, a Mediterranean eating pattern, the DASH eating pattern, which is was designed to reduce hypertension symptoms or, you know, treat or manage hypertension, and plant-based eating patterns, right? Those are the three that you see a lot. And my overall takeaway is not that animal protein is necessarily bad, but that uh, some animal-based protein sources are considerably worse in, you know, the net impact on health is considerably worse than a lot of the plant-based protein sources. But ultimately, 
you don't have to be on a plant-based diet to optimize your health. Uh, you could have, just like with a DASH eating pattern or a Mediterranean eating pattern, those could be omnivorous or they could be vegan or they could be ovo-lacto-vegetarian, right? Um, and so what, what's more important in my view is making sure that you are seeking out foods that are, you know, nutritious, things that support health, and avoiding or limiting certain food uh, products and certain food habits that are, uh, you know, their net impact is deleterious in nature, right? So if you were to ask me, are animal proteins worse than plant proteins? I would say not necessarily, right? But if you said, hey, I was thinking about having a protein source for breakfast every day, my normal breakfast, should I go with, you know, ultra processed fatty sausage or tofu? Well, yeah, like tofu's better in that context, right? If we're doing it daily and we're having a big old serving and that's how we're getting our 25 grams of protein at breakfast, yeah, tofu's just better, right? But if you told me uh, it was going to be a very lean, you know, uh, turkey cut, you know, some kind of turkey-based protein for breakfast, that was, you know, then yeah, I mean, th then we're talking about, okay, it's probably, in terms of your, your health impact, probably equivalent, right? So... All of that is to say it's a little more complicated than just animal versus plant, good versus bad, or vice versa. But um, but yeah, you can definitely have very health-supporting plant-based or omnivorous eating patterns. Um, but what a lot of folks do tend to notice is that when they start limiting animal proteins and seeking out more plant-based proteins, sometimes they do experience a broader shift in eating pattern that is probably a little bit more compatible with good health because a lot of times it's people who are pivoting from like a standard kind of Western high fat, high refined carbohydrate diet. And they're saying, let me incorporate some plant proteins. And what do those meals look like? Right. It's like a tofu based stir fry with a bunch of vegetables and rice, you know, so they're, they're shifting their eating pattern in a way that's usually advantageous, but not always Helms. You know, there's always the folks out there who say, good news, I'm going vegan, bad news, I'm eating a lot of Oreos and Twizzlers now. Are Oreos vegan? Or are they veg? I don't know. I don't know what that cream is made out of, man. I have no idea. But anyway, you get the idea. I have to Google it. Yeah. I I've seen people who are like, you know, I went vegan and I followed all the government guidelines and it made me, you know, very sick and unwell. And you're like, well, what did you eat? Twizzlers and goldfish. Well, that's not the government guidelines, you know, but anyway... That that's that's a talk for another day, um, Helms. We've got Can one I also here. Say, say just one thing that absolutely. I still really like the heuristic of focusing more on what you're including in your diet rather than what you're excluding for the most part. Uh, like, um, for example, the portfolio diet. That's one another one of these research backed um, diets that's a little newer and doesn't have quite as much research as the other ones behind it, but it was specifically de developed to lower cholesterol levels. And it's based not around as much excluding certain aspects that increase cholesterol, but more around foods that seem to have a positive impact on uh, cholesterol levels, such as plant sterols, tree nuts, soluble fiber, and vegetable proteins. Um, and there's some pretty good data specifically on it. And it does start shifting your diet into more plant-based, you know, like avocados, pears, apples, okra, eggplant, Brussels sprouts, nuts, seeds, whole grains, legumes, tempeh, tofu, soy milk, and, uh, and things like that. But, um, and yes, you're supposed to 
there, there's certainly an element of avoiding some of those foods that are higher in, uh, you know, saturated fat and trans fat, especially, but it is often, uh, the overall quality of our diet and what we're focusing on, including and replacing. I think that's another really important thing in nutrition science is it's a quote unquote weaker science when viewed compared to something, say like pharmaceutical science, because you don't really get to have zero exposure groups. It's all based upon observational trials where you have levels of intake that are based upon food recalls. And it's challenging to compare the absence of something to something else, uh, especially when we're talking about a component or ingredient within food. But we sometimes get close to that when we're comparing vegan versus non-vegans, but then we have confounders of vegans tend to be different people living different lifestyles. So anyway, um, the strongest effects are when we see the action of what happens when we take your saturated fat intake uh, and we replace it with these other items. And there's some cool data on that. So anyway, there's just some interesting data showing that like the portfolio diet can be as effective as literally taking statins in some cases. Um, and it is based primarily around including those things. So you can have a very healthy diet uh, that is based around um, these very nutritious elements of, uh, of what vegetarians are eating or vegans, um, but not necessarily need to not eat chicken, for example, or something of that nature, just as kind of a, uh, an aside. Yeah. And in the study that's coming out or the review of the study coming out March 1st, they actually, uh, distinguish animal protein, uh, versus dairy protein specifically versus plant-based. So, uh, be on the lookout for that, uh, for that article. And Helms, we walked right into another question. Uh, we just kind of are drifting from one to the other with these perfect segues. So Fen in the, uh, in the submission portal for our questions had a question about, uh, non-competitive lifting enthusiasts, right? So we're not talking about Mm. bodybuilders here, but let's say they've got a fairly healthy baseline diet. They're trying to lean out a little bit for the summer, something like that. What are your thoughts on modifying foods versus just eating less? So for example, replacing salad dressing with low-fat cottage cheese, powdered peanuts instead of peanut butter, uh, you know, making little swaps like that. How much do food replacement hacks work, and are they worth the trade-off of manipulating my routine? I think it really depends upon um, where you're at with your current satiety levels and diet enjoyment and how how much you have to, quote-unquote, pay attention to maintain where you're at. If you're currently kind of sliding into a small surplus because you're hungry all the time, um, this might only serve to curb that weight gain. However, if you're, here, I'll give you a personal example. At the start of my 2023 contest prep season in February, I was 96 kilos. My stage weight is around 79-ish. So uh, for people who want to speak American, I'm competing around 175 pounds, but I'm around, you know, 210, 215 you know, at the peak, peak, peak of my off season, there's not a whole lot of, uh, hunger going on. There's just varying degrees of satiety when I'm at that body weight. So I actually dropped, um, from 96 all the way down to the high eighties. So we're talking 25 pounds, um, by just making qualitative changes like that to my nutrition, where I swapped out, um, basically the Greek yogurt I was eating at night that had, you know, added sugar for flavoring and was low fat with non-fat, uh, uh, no sugar added plain Greek yogurt or skier that I just added sweetener to. Um, when I went, went to breakfast, instead of doing, uh, smoked salmon, 
like oatmeal and two poached eggs, I would just switch to, all right, instead of the oatmeal, let me get some spinach and mushrooms. And then at lunch, I was shifting from two pieces of fruit to uh, like berries and this other small piece of fruit, cutting about a hundred calories there without thinking about it. Um, and not having anything in my post-workout snack except for whey, when previously I might throw another piece of fruit in there or some carb source. And then essentially the dinner options that my wife Barbara and I would have, we just removed some of the higher calorie options. Like in the rotation, we would have pizza sometimes or Chinese. And we switched to, say, uh, Japanese, Thai, um, Balinese, things where I could make very low calorie uh, choices if I wanted. And then when we would make food at home, instead of making uh, like plant-based burgers with a big slice of feta on there, we would do low-carb wraps, not because I am going low-carb, but just they're lower in calories. Um, and without necessarily having any more cheese than Laughing Cow and doing plain yogurt and lean protein on there. So what I look, I, mean, I, I know how I actually manipulated the diet, and I was probably dropping an average of 1,200 calories off my diet per day um, on average. And that explains that that relatively rapid weight gain. But I didn't feel it, and I didn't have to think about the calories to do it. I was just thinking, let me look at each meal, and let me see a way that I can uh, make swaps to reduce the fat content and replace as much of the carb content as I can with uh, fruits and vegetables, unless they're already fruit. And then I just considered, would it be beneficial to cut a little bit of fruit or have a lower-calorie fruit option, like berries versus banana, while maintaining the protein content? Uh, and I think that is absolutely a viable option and you will get the most bang for your buck when doing that, when your diet is more on the palatable side versus the less palatable side, which we kind of covered in our discussion of processed foods. Uh, and when you are closer to your upper versus your lower intervention point uh, or beyond your upper intervention point, if you're really going hard on bulking, or if you are someone who is currently, uh, overweight for whatever reason, um, this is an excellent strategy and, I, one thing I will caution, though, is sometimes people think this is a good way to go if you ha don't have as much nutrition knowledge. I would say you need different nutrition knowledge. Because if you're someone who thinks, oh, nuts are a healthy snack that are high in protein and a good way to reduce my calories compared to, say, whatever I was eating, you know, like uh, that's actually not true. Those are higher in fat than anything else. Um, and you need to probably have an equal amount of macro and energy related knowledge and then understand uh like qualitatively what these swaps might look like so i, I would just encourage people to um give this a shot just knowing that their expectations should match those factors and if you're looking for some actual examples of what this is like i actually did log my contest prep i would check out the on the uh, youtube.com slash team 3dmj my first contest prep episode and also my next off-season vlog episode that I'm doing. I actually go through, I'm going to be going through a full day of eating. I'll probably drop that in a week or two. So for those who are interested in a more plant-based day of eating for more typical, not, not dieting kind of constraints, that might be useful to the previous question asker. Cool. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm a big fan of swaps. Um, I, you know, cause someone at the, the question specifically, uh, I don't want to misquote here said, uh, are they worth the trade-off of manipulating my routine? I would argue in in many cases, they're actually a great way to feel like you're not really changing your routine much at all, right? So mm -hmm. uh, a lot of times folks, when they're making changes uh, in terms of, you know, just dropping food and dropping food, you, you can really see that change, right? It used to be a very full plate. 
and now it's a less full plate. You know, you really feel that change. Whereas with swaps, I feel like sometimes you feel like it's almost like if you don't think too hard about it, uh, imagine that you are exchanging one currency that you fundamentally don't understand for a different currency that you fundamentally don't understand, right? So I'm trading, you know, pesos for yen and i don't understand the conversion rates for any of these like you know if you ever travel and you're dealing with money and you're like i have a hundred units of money and i don't know if that's 10 cents or if that's like three thousand dollars right so um sometimes when i'm dieting if i'm really pushing it hard of course it's good to you you should know what kind of swaps you're making but at the same time it's kind of best not to dwell on it for, for me for my personality makeup uh, so, like, I like to just say, oh, okay, I didn't lose much. I'm just having a different thing, right? And, of course, that different thing is lower in calories. But, like, I don't know. I'm looking down. The plate's full, just as full as it used to be. So what do I care, right? So I'm still eating at the same time. I'm, You know, it, it, it works that way for me. So wh- what this analogy it? actually would work if you had, like, a charge card and you went on vacation. You filled it with X amount of yen. And you're like, I have no idea how much that is. And you just used it. And then the analogy would continue. So the point at where you got your card declined, that's basically when you're getting really hungry. Yeah, <laughs> and you pretty much. <laughs> yeah. But but one thing I do like to do, actually. So a lot of folks in the fitness space, you know, they'll even in their off season, they're doing all these like low calorie hacks and working up to these crazy food volumes. And they're eating the low calorie version of everything, but they're eating like 3,800 calories a day or like 4,200, right? And they're just like gorging at these meals. I would actually encourage people to consider before you're about to go do a weight loss diet to do a preparatory phase where on higher calories, you adjust to a lower volume of food because I really like the idea and it can be kind of done in a way, or you can at least try to try to do this where throughout the course of a weight loss diet, your food volume stays relatively stable, but your caloric intake goes down. Psychologically, I think that that's a strategy that people don't talk about enough. I don't hear people talking about it much, but actually strategically working your food volume lower when calories are high so that you don't have to make as big sacrifices in food volume as you cut. That, that for me, using food swaps and applying that principle can make a diet actually feel pretty easy if you don't want to get super hung up on, you know, how many calories you're missing out on. But when you used to have, you know, eight ounces of something and you drop it to six, you can't ignore that. It's right there looking at you. And there's empirical support for this. A lot of it done by uh, Barbara Rolls. That's all related to energy density. And I actually think this is something that has been under discussed until more recently in the quote unquote evidence-based nutrition community. I have a pretty good video in mass uh, where I, I, I went over this. Um, and I've also discussed it in some of my articles and there are lists where you can look up like energy density categories. Um, and there's some data on like, I think most people consume between one to two kilograms of food a day. And that is relatively constant at stable body weight. Um, so if you can do things to just manipulate it, you will see these kind of drops in body weight reasonably predictably in the general population, which is probably why one of the reasons, at least why you see people who go on vegetarian diets lose weight. Because they have very, almost categorically, lower energy densities than typical diets. Absolutely. All right. Helms, I have good news and bad news. Which one do you want first? You know what? On Iron Culture, I took the good news first, and that went pretty well. So I think I've built the resilience up to handle this. Give me the bad news. Uh, 
I'm going to do the opposite order, actually. So I just asked well, you so I could disappoint you. So that's the bad news. I You're have be no agency. The good <laughs> bad news is I have no agency. The good news is that this episode, I'm pretty certain we set a PR for concurrent viewers, people who are viewing in the live chat at one time. But here's the bad news. They're not liking the video, Helms. We have a major issue where I've told people time and time again, the admission price, you don't have to actually pay anything, but you have to like the video. So if you're part of this movement, our PR for the most concurrent viewers we've ever had, take a moment right now, if you'd be so kind, hit the like button. It would it would really mean a lot to Helms. It would bring a lot of warmth to his cold heart. Uh, now, Helms, this show is all about the live chat. I want to dive in and give folks kind of, we have a, a lot of questions in the live chat, and I want to make sure we get to them, but I want to try to give concise answers to the best of our ability. And I think maybe also have one person kind of uh, tapped to answer each question, you know, to kind of get through this efficiently. So the first one, it's got your name all over it. And I'm not making a joke. Could I try to make a joke? Sure. The jokes almost write themselves, but someone had a question about what aging lifters ought to do. And it's not because you're old. I'm so sick of everybody in the chat talking about Helms being super old and way older than everyone else. It's just because you've written about this in mass. You've written about it multiple times. So what sort of modifications would you recommend that an aging lifter make if they wish to continue lifting well into their senior years? So intensity, volume, frequency, exercise selection... I will note, if you're in the live chat right now, don't blame me. The person asking the question defined aging as 40 plus. That number, it keeps getting lower by the day, especially as I get older. I'm starting to get a little bit uncomfortable. It used to be when you said an older lifter, you were talking about their 70s, and then it was like, well, you know, 55 plus. Now we're we're like a hair away from 39. But anyway, what do you think? All right, I'm going to be as concise as possible on this while still doing three things. Coping, making a joke, and actually answering the question. All right, so number one, I'm going to start with the joke. Um, write down on your hand, when you look at your, your program, uh, the date and what muscle group you're supposed to train. Because the early onset dementia, or Alzheimer's, or both, uh, is probably going to lead you to repeating the same workout every day. And you'll think that your DOMS is getting worse, but you've actually just done upper body four days in a row, and you still think it's Tuesday sometime in 1974. Haven't been many times. All right, joke out of the way. Uh, cope. Um, I think it's important to acknowledge that the data we have when we look at age, independent from decreasing physical activity or health related to decreases in that physical activity, would push that age where we should actually start thinking about this a lot higher than 40. So, for example, there's this large study that came out of none other than, I believe, your supervisor's lab, now your lab, right, led by Herman Ponser, that was looking at uh, the largest collective database based upon uh, doubly labored water analyses from that that we've seen. And when you remove those confounders, we actually do not see reductions in either energy expenditure or reductions in or changes, negative changes in quote unquote negative changes in body composition. So an exchange of fat mass uh, for for lean mass, not the exchange you want to make just like probably yen and pesos. uh, Not that I know um, until the age of 60. So that said, I do fully recognize that 
most people in the real world, they end up having kids, they get more job responsibilities, uh, and they find that their lives are just harder qualitatively or actually in some quantitative way that results in these reductions in energy expenditure because they're less active. And those reductions in activity results in losses of lean body mass, which compounds to makes things harder, negatively impacts their health, uh, metabolic profile, et cetera. And it's kind of this feed forward cycle. But when we look at active adults, when we look at masters athletes, when we look at different regions and we compare folks in, say, Scandinavia versus the U.S., a lot of the metrics that we have showing the effective age on the fitness and health-related topics starts to get a lot blurrier and going and goes away. So, for example, we don't see anabolic resistance when we look at adults in Scandinavia who are substantially more active than we see them in the West, even in the 60s and 70s. Um, and uh, now to actually answer the question, I will say that you will at some point, because we all die, unfortunately, hit a stage where age is going to negatively impact you. But it probably, if you stay active, is not going to happen until your late 50s or later, uh, based upon the data we have. Even those who are interested in like serious pursuit of goals, there was a recent analysis looking at men and women and modeling strength gain over time. And it wasn't until like the, I think the M2 or M3 category where the tra trajectory of strength actually started going down. Okay. So um, that's not necessarily saying everyone who started lifting at 20 will still be getting stronger at 60. That's, you know, a, a kind of a big picture view. A lot of people who started lifting at 40 and maybe at 52, they're still getting stronger, which is not a perfectly fair comparison, but nonetheless. So uh, what do you need to do? Probably not a whole lot different except monitoring recovery and kind of treating yourself as not the same person you was, you were. And I think this is not too different from what you should do generally. Uh, when I get questions about sex differences, for example, um, our good colleague, the soon-to-be Dr. Uh, Colenzo Semple, is talks about how, yes, there are sometimes impacts of the menstrual cycle, probably not for the mechanisms that are largely speculated about, like small changes in, in estrogen or progesterone. But more often than not, the individual differences unrelated to the menstrual cycle between women, or even between men and women, often are larger than the average effects that you will see from menstrual cycle, um, you know, cycle phase. So what you would do in any case as a coach or when working with yourself is you would want to assess how am I responding? How am I recovering? What's my trajectory and uh, increases and, and rates of strength or, or uh, changes in body composition, whatever your goal is, and then adjust things. Uh, there are some data to indicate that at a certain point, the volumes or the frequency should be adjusted. Uh, probably based upon age. And there are some data to suggest that you might experience, um, you know, soreness or lingering pain, uh, DOMS from, from, from training for longer. Um, and it's not really super direct data, but we also have other data, which I think is quite encouraging when we compare middle-aged individuals to younger individuals. And we see that for 99% of metrics, they're able to complete at least acutely similar volumes of training and show similar subjective and objective recovery. And we've actually covered some of that in mass. So I think this is really something you don't need to worry about in your 30s, 40s, and 50s for the most part, um, at least when we look at group comparisons. But your mileage may vary. You may find that you have to be a little more attentive to these things at a certain point in your age compared to when you were younger. Uh, one case study subjective report, my colleague uh, Jeff Alberts, he just had his best season ever in bodybuilding at 52. That's on the table, which I think is important to acknowledge, considering he started lifting as a teenager. 
right? You can be at your best at 52 as a drug-free natural bodybuilder. Not everyone necessarily will be, but he was. However, he would also tell you that he's had to be more circumspect related to the training dosing and think more about supply and demand, as he would tell you. So those things can happen concurrently. And what that indicates that if you are someone impacted by your age, it's not necessarily going to be to the point where it's a barrier to you doing your best. And even if it is, then it's just a matter of shifting your perspective. And this is probably the most important thing on how do I be the best I can today? Because in the end, the only time that we ever really have is now. So there's not a whole lot of uh, benefit when you really think about it on thinking about what could be based upon yesterday or, or what might be based upon tomorrow. Uh, as I'm a child of two parents who grew up in 12-step programs, there's a hilarious saying that runs in those 12-step programs that when you've got a foot in yesterday and a foot on tomorrow, you're taking a shit on today. So we're paraphrasing that. So yeah, I'll, I'll leave it there. That's not the most scientific answer, but I would also challenge people just to say that, you know, our perspectives or the perspectives on the internet of what is old are often skewed downwards. And I think a lot of that's impacted by the push by companies that sell it to sell you TRT. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, I've probably got about a, at all. I apologize. about a dozen books behind me all about how all we have is the present moment, Helms. Very, uh, very meaningful Zen Buddhist philosophy that we're applying to training as we age. Um, and we're all aging. Uh, you know, it's just some of us are in that awful 40 plus category that fortunately separates you and I. Uh, all right. So quick one here. Uh, we get a lot of uh, questions about set volume. So we, we've gone into it in depth previously, but this uh, person asks us, random username, uh, how does weekly set volume relate to muscle growth? And more specifically, if we're talking about a young male who's a beginner, uh, how much are they missing out on if they're only doing maybe four to eight sets per muscle group per week instead of doing maybe 10 to 12? Not a whole lot um, on average. The best data we have to inform this are specifically that question is actually probably Schoenfeld's 2017 meta-analysis. There was also a 2021 meta-analysis by Baz Val. However, they did not actually do a meta-analysis comparing less than 10, uh, 10 to 20 sets. They compared 10 to 20 and then 20 plus. Um, and there was very little overlap between the studies and those two meta-analyses. So it's not like one big continuous thing where we can say, well... You know, 10 to 20 is better than 10 plus, or that is the operational definition of 10 plus. But if we look at Schoenfeld meta-analysis, which was largely done on untrained individuals, and very importantly, they counted direct and indirect sets one-to-one. So if you want to know, you know, how many sets for the biceps were done, it's every set of rows, every set of pull-downs, every set of curls. So a lot of the times when you hear these volume prescriptions and you think it's an astronomical amount, it's actually substantially less than you might otherwise conceptualize volume. If you were to do three sets of bicep curls, three sets of lap pull-downs, and three sets of rows, which is a very reasonable, you know, back and buys day, pull day, or upper body day, at least half of it that's not the pushing portion, you're basically already nearly at the highest volume that was recorded there um, for biceps. So um, the data would generally lean towards that somewhere in the 10 to 20 set range per week per muscle group, counting direct and indirect work, is going to result in the most people, if we were to make bets on the population, uh, of getting the fastest rates of gains. However, true novices grow very quickly. And if you were to look at kind of some of the effect size comparisons, 
you're probably getting 60 to 80% plus of your gains by moving up the three categorical distinctions in, in Schoenfeld to meta from one to four to five to nine to 10 plus. And 80% of the fastest gains you're ever going to make is still a lot. And there's a decent chance that you're downshifted one standard deviation. So I would say there's absolutely nothing wrong with doing four to eight sets as a novice. And it's not a bad place to start. And then once you truly stall and you're seeing no more progress in terms of strength gains and, and changes in your training modalities, and it's been, say, two to three to four months, and you're not seeing any visual changes or your shirt's feeling differently or the scale has been stale, um, at that point, if you feel like you're having no trouble with recovery, enjoyment is still high, you're not getting joint pain, then you can leverage doing something like, say, a 10, 20, or 30% increase in the volume. All right, good stuff. Um, so we've got one here about uh, capillaries, of all things. Uh, so oh. dust off the old physiology book. So Jonathan uh, asked, Thoughts on training to increase uh, capillary density in order to potentiate future gains. Uh, so the idea that if you have greater capillary content and theoretically capillary density, maybe you can provide nutrients and oxygen and all that good stuff more effectively to muscle during training. Um, as you ponder that, you know, I'll throw my two cents in. I think that this is a theoretically interesting question, but personally, I don't think it's a very practically actionable question. Um, I've not seen evidence in the trenches or in the data that would really lead me to believe that there's a large number of folks out there who would be getting considerably bitter, bigger if only they had greater capillary density. Um, so if you want to ask this as a question of like, what is the maximum human limit for the ability to maintain enormous amounts of muscle mass? Uh, perhaps that's an interesting question to ask. Um, and I don't know if we have data to confirm or deny that particular concept, but in terms of like, Hey, have I ever worked with anyone as a client who was held back by lack of capillary density? Um, I feel pretty confident saying that the answer is actually no. Uh, how do you feel about that Helms? There was a study that came out where they did, um, they did some, like, I want to say cycling in a crossover trial either with the arm or the leg, prior to them jumping into a resistance training protocol. And in the crossover arm where the cycling came first, there was it's either better molecular responses, or I'm thinking of two different studies, better molecular responses and actually better hypertrophy, maybe two different studies, uh, following that training. Um, certainly one of the adaptations to uh, cardiovascular training and cycling is... Uh, increased capillary density, or at the very least, better oxygen delivery, which would be potentially related to it. Um, I'm not a cardio guy, you know. This is where my... When you, when you see what my actual degrees are titled, and you assume general knowledge, uh, I have far lower in certain areas than others. Um, I don't recall if in that study, and I'll try to look it up while you answer maybe the next one, whether they looked at some of the mechanisms that they thought might explain it, but there is this study out there where cardio prior to resistance training, and not like immediately prior, like 30 minutes later, but like a block of training where they did cardio and then a block of training where they did resistance training seemed to prime them for greater gains. Could be related to various mechanisms uh, because, you know, aerobic training does a lot of stuff for you, both locally and systemically. So um, I would say it is possible that that is something that could be a thing. 
Uh, but I don't think, and, and until I dig into this study a little bit more, uh, that I think we have uh, direct data to indicate that is the specific mechanism. Yeah, I also feel like the longer term interventions with concurrent training would look a lot better uh, if we were to kind of build upon the study you mentioned and then kind of play it out in a more applied sense. Um, but yeah, so it's, I, I agree with you, it, it's possible, but um, I am, until I see some really interesting and really compelling data, I'm still kind of, um, you know, I, I'm not putting all my eggs in that particular basket. And, and from an act, from the standpoint of, you know, turning that into an actionable recommendation, um, if someone told me they wanted to, you know, they, they felt like, Capillar, capillary density was limiting their ability to complete repetitions uh, and maybe that was reducing their uh, ability to achieve more volume or apply more tension to the muscle um, you know I don't know I, I don't really run into that a lot and I'd probably just say let's do some higher rep resistance training to try to build up that particular physical capacity but all of that is to say it's very speculative and theoretical in nature um, so a question here. I, 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 yeah. I've now got the study. So for those who are interested in further reading, you'll want to check out Thomas et al. 2022, short-term aerobic conditioning prior to resistance training augments muscle hypertrophy and satellite cell content in healthy young men and women. Um, and yeah, his, uh different legs were randomized into different blocks. So it probably has more to do. Now, I think that's important. It's a within subject design. So that does likely remove the potential mechanism of it just being overall cardiorespiratory fitness and adaptations to the heart and lungs, um, because it is probably something more locally. So I, I definitely don't think it's off the table, but I think you would really have to think about what would my periodized approach be? Like, okay, at this point, I plan to try to increase my volume of training and really get after it. Prior to that, I'm going to do some low volume training and then on my off days, do some, some type of aerobic training that we'll do all the things that we've talked about various times in mass to not elicit the interference effect. So I'm not just taking one step back, take two, two steps forward and think about, you know, that in the long term. And I think we're probably a little early in terms of the mechanistic research to even get to the translational research before we get to the application. And I have no problem in the absence of data making, you know, perspective, you know, theoretical based training decisions only when there's low chance of harm. And I think because the interference effect is a thing, because having to do aerobic training is a time suck, I would not recommend this being one of those times you make that leap. That's much more understandable if you're doing something like length and partial training, where we have no data to suggest that it'll be worse than full range of motion training and integrated into a good training protocol. It's either going to be neutral or positive. But yeah, throwing a bunch of cardio in because you want to get that capillary density you know, I think there is a point where that could be a negative. Cool. I'm going to take a few from me here, make sure that we get some answers to the good people. Erica asked, um, uh, in circumstances where there's not a serious loss of electrolytes from sweat, like high volume sweating, is there a benefit to supplementing with electrolytes? Um, I would say it depends on what you mean by benefit. So there is a scenario where if for some reason you were drinking a ton of water, and had very low electrolyte intake in your diet, um, theoretically, you'd want to make sure you're getting some electrolytes. I don't know if I've ever really seen that practically. And if I had, it, it would almost always be a scenario where I would say, why Why are you drinking all this water, <laughs> right? So like, if you're way over drinking water and under consuming dietary electrolytes, maybe you could create a scenario 
where it would be advisable, but I'd be stunned if anyone listening to my voice right now is in that scenario or is working with a client in that scenario. It'd be, you'd have to go out of your way to fabricate a scenario to make that kind of make sense. Um, But, you know, I I do want to acknowledge there are some folks, unfortunately, pretty tragic stories where people say, I'm going to run a marathon tomorrow. I need to be hydrated. And they're just downing gallons of water in the absence of electrolytes and they throw off their electrolyte balance. And it can be quite, quite dangerous. And then it could be fatal if you go really far with it. So I, I did uh, need to acknowledge that on a more theoretical note, more so than a practical note. Uh, one potential benefit, and I'm being very generous here, um, if you are someone who f- finds that you're you know, very habitually underhydrated, um, sometimes just adding something to make your water taste a little more interesting can be nice, right? So um, it doesn't have to be electrolytes. It could be anything that makes your water... Um, taste a little better. And if there is a little bit of sodium in whatever you're drinking, it will increase your your drive to consume fluids. That's one of the reasons that sports beverage, among others, one of the reasons they include sodium and they make them taste good is because then athletes will actually want to drink them rather than their coach saying, hey, drink this water that you're really not all that interested in drinking. But, you know, in most cases, if people ask me, you know, hey, I'm habitually, you know, reasonably well hydrated. I eat a pretty typical diet with, you know, salt and all that other stuff in it. Will I benefit from an electrolyte supplement? Usually my answer is probably not. Uh, I'm, I know there's a lot of flashy claims about strength related to salt and, and other electrolytes, but every time I try to look into the research to find anything to substantiate that, I, I come back uh, pretty empty handed. Um, another one here. Um, so, uh, we had a question, if a 500 calorie deficit prevents muscle growth, does it make sense to lower volume to maintenance during a cut? Um, I don't really think so. First of all, that 500 calorie number is, you know, th- that's definitely, uh, it's evidence based, but it is not a law of physics, you know? So there was a meta regression that said about it, 500 calorie deficit, that's where within their data, they found it was kind of hard to spur, you know, a a net growth of muscle in the interventions they were looking at. Uh, But the broader point in that article was that, uh, you know, if you're someone who's trying to recomp, you probably don't want to be in a super aggressive deficit and trying to build substantial amounts of muscle, um, you know, especially if you're relatively well trained, then it's going to be a really uphill battle. So the 500 calorie number, I think it's just important to make sure we're not treating that like it's, you know, uh, set in stone. Uh, There are definitely people who can build muscle while they're in a 500 calorie deficit. But I think um, I'm not, I don't really follow the logical uh, connection then to saying, well, if I'm cutting, then therefore I need to make a volume adjustment because why bother when I'm in a 500 calorie deficit? I would think, You'd want to continue manipulating your training variables in a way that maximizes either the growth or the retention of muscle mass. And and so I I would not, um, just as a default suggestion, recommend, you know, precipitously cutting volume just because you're in a deficit. I think in most cases, you'll probably benefit from maintaining a a fairly similar level of volume as when you're trying to build muscle uh, in in a a bulking scenario. Helms, do you uh, have any additional wrinkles to add there? I think this is a good example where people get stuck on single factor thinking when it's uh, a more complex thing than that. It is not just 
deficit equals um, less ability to benefit from training, therefore do less training. It is still that the method by which we retain muscle is the same by which we grow muscle. It is stimulating muscle protein synthesis and the net outcome. And whatever results in the context you're in, in the most effective training stimulus that you can recover from, that's what you should do. And the question is then, how much does a 500 calorie deficit impact how much volume you can benefit and recover from? It doesn't change at all how much volume you can benefit from. It may, but not as much as you probably think, impact how much you can recover from. So in cases where a 500 calorie deficit meaningfully impacts your ability to recover from a given amount of training stimulus, that is when it would make more sense to do less. But I think in most cases, especially early in diets, when you're not also dealing with some of the other overlapping effects that we talked about on our recent Iron Culture episode, where we talked about the overlapping effects of REDS and being below your lower intervention point, that's a non-issue. And most diets are not going to produce something, especially if it's only a 500 calorie deficit where you're experiencing REDS or taking you to a place where you're really at an unsustainably low body fat percentage. Awesome. So uh, another question here from Alvin. Can antioxidants from fruits and vegetables attenuate hypertrophy uh, because of their, uh, you know, effect on oxidative stress and inflammation? Is it still okay to eat antioxidant-rich fruits uh, when you're hoping to cause hypertrophy? Um, I would not spend one additional moment worrying about antioxidants from fruits or vegetables. Um, If you look at the antioxidant literature pertaining to hypertrophy, uh, you have to work pretty hard to create a scenario where there's any uh, hindrance of hypertrophy and it's fairly modest in magnitude. So if you were a person with low baseline oxidative stress and you took large doses of dietary supplements that are antioxidants, uh, maybe you could have a partial attenuation of hypertrophy. Uh, If you have high oxidative stress or inflammation at baseline, antioxidant supplements actually may help with muscle growth. Um, if you're getting your antioxidants from fruits and vegetables, actual foods, rather than a supplement, uh, there is no chance that there is going to be any impairment of hypertrophy. Um, and there's even some research to suggest that even if you're doing supplements that are phytonutrient based antioxidants, rather than just like direct, you know, kind of antioxidant scavengers, like high dose vitamin C and vitamin E in combination, even if you're just taking some kind of like herbal antioxidant supplement, those are probably uh, reducing oxidative stress by a slightly different mechanism. There's kind of a different pathway they're working through. Uh, So even those, it's kind of questionable whether even those high-dose supplements would do anything in terms of hypertrophy. So definitely eat plenty of fruits, eat plenty of vegetables. This also um, pertains to a question we didn't get to, but it's a quick answer. Someone asked if they should be restricting fiber post-workout to, you know, kind of facilitate faster absorption of nutrients and all that stuff. Sometimes I'll see people lump that in and they'll say, well, I want to avoid antioxidants after a workout because I don't want to, you know, reduce oxidative stress and inflammation, impair hypertrophy. Both of those um, potential worries we can completely abandon. Uh, There is no no evidence, there's, there's strong evidence uh, to contradict the idea that post-workout fiber is going to impair uh, your ability to uh, recover or realize the adaptations that you just trained for. It's not going to hold you back in any way. 
And the same is true if we're talking about antioxidant-rich fruits or vegetables. Helms, anything to add? A generally high fruit and vegetable diet might even give you enough nitrate to actually improve your performance. That is true. It is true. Um, Now, Helms, you had mentioned uh, a question, or or you you brought up the idea of of a settling point, or a set point, Mm. uh, intervention points. Lower intervention point, yeah, man. So I, I saw one, uh, a question here, um, given energy intake is the same, could one shift their lower intervention point by gradually increasing step count and or adding weight to a weight vest over time? Probably not would be my response. Um, I think it is very difficult to really disentangle in a dieting state uh, where your lower intervention point is from especially if you're trying to get down around your lower intervention point from where you're seeing independent effects of being too lean and this is something that almost every bodybuilder who has a few seasons under their belt and has a desire to try to stay a little leaner in the off season either because they think it's cool or because they want a longer runway or they don't want to have that awful rebound they experienced that one time is trying to disentangle the effects of how much they're eating versus how lean they are versus how much cardio they're doing and you're seeing the overlapping effects of uh energy expenditure compensation um being below one's lower intervention point as well as relative energy deficiency or just low energy availability if it's not the full-blown symptoms of reds um the data i have seen on changing one's intervention point is it's non-existent for the most part, I would say, because we can't really operationally measure when you are at it. Um, however, I would say that theoretically, the range of where your upper and lower intervention point are is both asymmetric in terms of the physiological response for most people and pretty damn broad. And there may be some mechanistic data indicating you can unfortunately increase your upper intervention point um, with repeated cycles of weight gain which could be maybe mechanistically driven by increases in the number of fat cells. And we don't have good data on whether or not you can decrease the number of fat cells, although it wouldn't surprise me if we did actually observe that's a thing. So, doesn't mean that you can't experience in practice the equivalent of lowering your lower intervention point. Because if I was to tell you what seemed to be the lower intervention point in the average male in, say, an Amish community where they have very high step counts because they're tilling the land and literally farming and doing all the things that a farming-based culture would do, getting, on average, 20,000 steps a day plus, uh, while also eating very high calories and the high 3,000s on average despite being, you know, buck 60 to buck 70 pounds walking around, the average body composition in this group is somewhere around 11% body fat. Yeah. So I think the, and that's measured by not the greatest perfect measures, but I would say because it's a relatively large sample size, talking hundreds, and most we're talking about average body composition, let's say 13 or 14%. And not an internet 14% where you're actually 20%, but like an actual 14%. So I think if if most people realized that they could walk around at what the internet would call 10% body fat all the time just by, shifting down to being slightly above the lower intervention point rather than changing it, they may not need or feel the need to change their lower intervention point. And again, that's an average. You go two standard deviations deviations up from that, 
you're probably still healthy, but you may not. You may wish you looked like the person who was two, two, two standard deviations below it, hanging around like nearly two weeks out all the time. But that's just the nature of life. So um, I think it's there's a, there's there's definitely a worthwhile effort to be put into modifying your environment, which literally means everything except your genetics. You know, not just like the powers that be in society or modern environment. I'm talking about going on walks. I'm talking about resistance training. I'm talking about buying different things in the grocery store. I'm talking about, you know, all the stuff we talked about, manipulating your diet to be less like a hyper-processed diet so that you have a higher satiety. You're still getting your two pounds or three pounds or four pounds of food that you're eating, but it's a lower energy density, higher fiber intake, higher protein intake, lots of fruits and vegetables. And you're resistance training like a maniac, progressively overloading and having a high step count doing all those things and making them come second nature rather than being a an effort that requires rigid restraint you're probably more than likely after a, a couple of years of doing so going to be floating down around and hanging out near your lower intervention point unless you're purposely bulking and um, that is essentially what the quote-unquote bodybuilding lifestyle is and what i would say is the goal of most non-competitive bodybuilders i agree yeah um yeah it's it's tricky because like you were alluding to, uh, a lot of people are, are often focused on how do I change my lower intervention point where, um, you know, if, if you're treating it like a true biological set point, then it should be, I would say, pretty pretty immune to some of these little behavioral things we might do. Because, you know, like, like you said, you're really just changing your proximity to it by adjusting these behaviors. And that might seem like, oh, yeah, I'm it's less effortful to maintain a leaner body weight. I must have changed my lower intervention point. But I think a lot of times that's a little bit more of a, um, a, a an illusion or a misperception. Whereas, you know, that, that kind of biological set point is probably still right about where it, where it used to be. Um, it, the idea of walking to reduce it um, kind of uh, alludes to another question that's in the live chat here. So, Someone asked if 150 calories are burned via low intensity walks instead of 150 calories via high intensity cardio, is energy compensation less likely to occur? Uh, my answer would be no. Uh, the reason I say that, first of all, it can be a bit difficult to parse the effect of intensity because a lot of times in studies that look at energy compensation or the constrained energy expenditure model, uh, usually you're getting a, a measure of total daily energy expenditure from doubly labeled water, and you know, you're getting a measure of resting metabolic rate from indirect calorimetry. And in some cases, you don't really have a lot of detailed information about the intensity of activity that was actually um, happening. Sometimes you do, via accelerometry, but even just taking a, a very surface level look at it, uh, some of the instances of, um, you know, pretty substantial, some of the more glaring uh, pieces of evidence that support the idea of the constrained energy expenditure model or, um, you know, exercise energy compensation, we see it at very large extremes, right? So we'll see, for example, in the Tour de France, you know, a, a pretty... It, you know, cycling up those hills, that, that's a hell of an intense event, right? That's, that's not exactly easy stuff. Um, and then on the other end of, of the spectrum, we see a lot of these um, kind of uh, populations of folks who live in pre-industrial societies where they're doing a lot of hunting and gathering, 
uh, working with their herds, doing some very small scale, very arduous farming, you know, if they're doing maybe a little bit of farming. So um, in that case, we're seeing, you know, a very, very high level of activity, but at extremely low intensities for the vast majority. And in both of these ends of the spectrum, we are seeing, um, you know, when folks are remarkably active, we're, we're starting to see those um, those examples of constraint. And if anything, uh, part of me, part of me would speculate that perhaps we see even a higher likelihood of constraint uh, when folks are doing um, very low intensity work. But um, I, I think you know the, the simplest answer, without getting too um, without speculating too much, is that I don't think we can kind of uh, find a, a way to kind of sneak past energy compensation by doing lower intensity activity. Uh, the the data we have from hunter gatherers and similar populations would be uh, very much contradictory to that. Um, all right, so let's see here. This is interesting. If mechanical tension is number one in terms of the most important things for muscle growth, does the presence of a pump increase the perceived tension on the muscle? If so, would that give more credibility to the pump? What do you think about that, Helms? I want to say that I like this question um, because it allows me to explain that mechanical tension is a far more complex thing than sometimes we throw it around as. So when we think about the speculative model that came out in 2009 or 10 that Schoenfeld wrote about of uh, mechanical tension, muscle damage, and metabolic stress being the three determinants of hypertrophy, uh, for one, um, that is absolutely a speculative paper. And even if you asked Brad Schoenfeld, he would say so. And he would probably indicate, hey, you need to go look at my sensors and signalers for hypertrophy paper that came out a few years back. That's a huge update on that. That's a a paper that's, you know, more than a decade old. Um, and it's very difficult to disentangle these mechanisms because you can't get metabolic stress, nor can you get muscle damage without producing mechanical tension. They co-vary. Um, and then when you dig into each one of these individual things, what is mechanical tension? I think you ask most people that and they kind of go, uh, they don't actually know. It's something that they say, oh, it occurs at the fiber level. Does it in all cases? So I'm aware of at least five mechanosensors, that these are actual protein structures within the uh, the muscle, not necessarily always within the muscle fiber. For example, we have focal adhesions, sometimes called costomeres, which connect the uh, ultracellular matrix of muscle to the, the actual contractile tissue, which are, you know, uh, sensing lateral force transmission. Um, we have stretch-sensitive ion gates, which are actually in the muscle membrane, which expand. We have titan, which is a non-contractile protein, the largest protein, that un- hence the name, that unfolds during the eccentric, uh, that is basically sensing longitudinal stress. Um, we also have a really interesting phenomenon where it's been speculated that the actual myonuclei themselves, when you actually get a stretch on the fascicle, it compresses the myonuclei and they act as mechanosensors, which I think is just really cool and kind of bonkers. Um, and there's more. Uh, th- those are just uh, a number of them. There's a few others that I don't actually have the physiological depth to understand, but I can just say, hey, they, they're this shape, they're in this part of the muscle, and when I think about the muscle moving, they probably get activated during a lengthening contraction or a compressive contraction. So 
some of them exist at the fiber level. Some of them are in the uh, extracellular matrix. Some of them, you could argue, would respond more to being stretched, some more to being compressed, and certainly some also to an increase of volumization of the muscle and pressure on the outside of the cell uh, or compression of the nuclei. So the answer is maybe yes, but it's really hard to say. And anytime you see someone kind of doing a throwaway mention about uh, mechanical tension or, you know, metabolic stress for that matter too, like what metabolite are you talking about, you know? I think is a very valid question. Um, And then with that, and I'm not just saying, hey, this is too complex, don't worry about it, because I think that's sometimes an error of pseudoscientists or a purposeful disinformation tactic is they'll they'll throw a bunch of science at you and then just convince you whatever they want. Um, All I'm saying is that I talked earlier about mechanistic research, translational research, and practice. One error that I've seen consistently done ever since the beginnings of exercise science is we identify a potential mechanism and we go straight to practice. There's no jump from mechanistic to translational. Oh, we saw growth hormone go up when we restricted rest intervals. Let's put in a hypertrophy training textbook for personal trainers that they need to only rest 60 seconds. Oops. Sorry, 1998. You really kind of screwed people up for a couple decades, right? Um, And I think similar things came out of 2009. Let me do a damage set. Let me do a metabolic stress set. Let me do a tension set. No, 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 no. That's, that is not the way the, the scientific process should work. And now we're seeing similar things with some people creating uh, models that have not been empirically stress tested, in my opinion, um, to prescribe resistance training and making claims that are sometimes directly counter to the overall translational data we have of a specific hypertrophy rep range, uh, or, or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So fun theoretical question. And models can be used in various ways. Models can be used that are purposely overly simplified, that we don't think apply to practice as a learning tool, a teaching tool, or they can be used to actually mathematically model things and we're fitting them to data. Um, and they should always be iterative, especially if they're at that point where we're trying to inform what are we actually doing, understand that they can change over time. Um, but uh, I've gone off on a tangent. This is not a short answer. The answer to the question is perhaps... Uh, the pump could modify mechanical tension through a few of those different mechanical sensors, mechanosensors. There are probably more mechanosensors that we have not established, and the downstream signaling effects they have, there's probably pathways we have not identified, uh, and we simply don't really fully understand the process of hypertrophy induced by mechanical tension. Um, so, maybe. It's fun to think about. It's possible. But, uh, don't know. Yeah, it's a good question. And the pump is something I spent a lot of time thinking about because my dissertation research was on nitric oxide booster supplements um, in the context of resistance training. And some of the things that are really tricky, and, and you kind of alluded to this when you were talking about making that jump from mechanistic to translational before we put something into practice. So let's, you know, hypothetically run with the premise and say, yes, the the kind of three-dimensional compressive force that is kind of secondary to this swelling within the muscle actually does activate uniquely some of these, you know, um, mechanosensors, right? And then actually, you know, you're pantomiming the idea of blowing up, you know, your muscle there, but why not um, lift with some floaties on and actually provide some some externally uh, induced compression, right? Like, you know, those little floaties that you can swim in? Well, you say that, but there is actually data indicating you get a different effect from wider 
blood flow restriction cuffs, the narrower. And mm-hmm. that that may actually be a portion of the effect. Who knows? Oh, and then you, I, I know there's a lot of methodological arguments about how wide they should be and that if they're too wide, you, your pressure might be too high. But anyway, that's a whole other tangent. But um, even if we go with it, right? I wasn't just trying to talk about floaties to put around your arms when you're doing curls. So the thing about a pump is even if we go with that and say, yes, this kind of swelling has a unique impact on mechanical tension, then a question becomes, are we sure that a, you know, 10 out of 10 crazy pump in the gym is meaningfully different than an 8 out of 10? Like, it is even that kind of crappy pump you get on your off days, not a literal off day, but on your not so good pump days, is that still just plenty to activate those mechanosensors? Or do you actually need a subjectively good pump better than your normal pump? Like, will that actually confer a benefit or is enough enough, Right. And then even if you wanted to do that, how would you, aside from just training within the proper kind of loading parameters, usually people will go with some lower loads, higher reps, maybe some shorter rests to just kind of, you know, get that pump going and drive muscle uh, blood into the muscle. But when I've tried to look at, you know, are we sure that nitric oxide boosters, which should increase blood flow, are we sure that they actually increase the pump? I don't know. I mean, I'm, I've seen some data that would indicate that if you're a young, healthy individual who's got, you know, a nice vascular system doing what it's supposed to do, maybe you've got all the pump that you need. And, you know, maybe, you know, maybe a nitric oxide booster can get you to your kind of fully pumped status like one or two sets earlier. Maybe, maybe not even that, you know, if you have really good endothelial function and a functioning vascular system that's really well tuned. So all of that is to say there are so many hurdles that stand between this idea being not just plausible, but actually factually true. And then can we actually do anything about it? And then even if we could, even if all that stuff lines up in a way where we can um, go out of our way to, um, to kind of capitalize on this, then the question is at what cost, right? So if you have to maybe adjust some training variables to make it happen, have you sacrificed something else in the process? So that's not anything actionable right now, but it's an example of when, whenever you hear a mechanism and you say, oh, well, that's that's rock solid. I'm sure that's going to pan out. You have to start thinking through, okay, but how many steps are actually between this idea and having it play out? And are we sure that we're not sacrificing anything along the way to get there? Um, but all of that is to say, we've had some good questions. To, well, we've had a lot of great questions tonight. Unfortunately, we're not going to be able to get to all of them because we're out of time here. But I really appreciate everyone for joining us. It was a, a record-setting uh, crowd tonight. Thank you so much for joining us and for contributing all these questions. I'm going to go through and try to jot some down so I can get to some of these uh, next episode, which will be one week from tonight, next Wednesday, the 28th. Um, Because, yeah, there's just some really good questions in here that we were not able to get to. So um, anyway, yeah, great questions in here. And a couple of them were very, like, theoretical. We talked a little bit about capillary density and, you know, pumps, you know, facilitating greater muscle tension. So I think this episode had a great blend of theoretical stuff, kind of high-end conceptual stuff, and also some very practical stuff that you can put into... uh, put into practice tomorrow when you're planning out your breakfast or getting into the gym for your workout. So a uh, really wonderful episode. And I will say not, you know, not being uh, overly humble here, but 
we have better episodes when the audience brings it. And tonight they brought it. Uh, the the questions make the show, and I really appreciate everyone for submitting these fantastic questions tonight. So, Dr. Helms, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us and for joining us tonight. Next week, I'll be back with a different member of the Mass Crew. Who? I'm not sure. You'll have to join in and uh, tune in to find out. That will be exactly one week from tonight. Everyone have a lovely week, and I hope to see you all very, very soon.